June 1st, 1976, a low-slung double-hulled canoe makes its way out of Honolulu Bay off the Hawaiian island of Maui. A crowd of well-wishers is there to see it off. The wooden boat is nearly 70 feet long, the length of a good-sized yacht. The 16 men on board churn the choppy water with broad paddles while a carving of a brown-skinned woman watches from a post. Above her, two orange-colored sails ripple in the wind. By nightfall, they're on the open sea. The men eat a communal meal on deck. Then some try to sleep while others work to keep the boat on course, following orders from their navigator. Mo Pialug is in his 40s, with a compact body and soft black curls. He's one of just a handful of men across the Pacific trained in the ancient art of wayfinding, using the stars, the currents, the wind, and the waves to navigate great distances across the open ocean. Sometimes songs help show the way, oral maps of long-ago journeys that Mo learned from his father and grandfather. The canoe is named Hokulea after the star Arcturus, and Mo's assignment is to sail it to Tahiti, 2,500 miles away. Tahiti is a tiny dot in the middle of the vast Pacific. It's hard enough to stay on course with modern instruments and maps, but Hokulea has none of those. It just has Mo. Mo says he's never sailed in this part of the ocean before. It makes him nervous. He can't really sleep. The crew has stowed a 40-day supply of food and water, plus live chickens and a pig. Before long, the men are fighting with each other. But they sail on day after day, night after night, bearing south-southeast as Mo reads the water and the sky. For generations, anthropologists have said there's no way the people who settled the Pacific could have arrived at their islands on purpose. Their boats weren't big enough, and the islands were too far apart. Most likely, they just drifted there on ocean currents. But by the 1970s, archaeologists have found signs of at least three waves of migration going back thousands of years, not just one recent one as they'd always assumed. If Mo can find his way to Tahiti, it will go a long way toward proving that his ancestors knew perfectly well where they were going. And so when, on the 31st day of the voyage, Mo Piailug steers Hokulea into Tahiti's main harbor, 17,000 jubilant people come out to meet him. For science writer Sonia Shaw, author of a new book on migration, it's further proof that human beings, like whales and birds and butterflies, were never meant to stay in one place. On the contrary, she says, we are built to move. And that just might save us from whatever comes next. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From Wondery, I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. I founded The Next Big Idea Club with Malcolm Gladwell, Susan Cain, Daniel Pink, and Adam Grant to connect people to some of the boldest thinking shaping our culture and our future. Each week on the podcast, we bring you one idea with the power to change the way you see the world. This week, The Migration Instinct.
It's a challenging time to be thinking about migration, with so many restrictions on who could move where and immigration systems around the world on hold. The trends before the coronavirus pandemic were clear. Borders were hardening, and populist leaders were winning elections on anti-immigration platforms. Science writer Sonia Shaw saw something oddly counterfactual in that. Politicians arguing that immigration is unnatural when the latest research showed the exact opposite. That's the territory she explores in her wide-ranging new book, The Next Great Migration, The Beauty and Terror of Life on the Move. She traces centuries of thinking on migration, not just of people, but of animals, plants, and microbes. And she finds that the stories we tell don't always line up with the evidence. This is Shaw's fifth book. Her last one was about pandemics, and it's made her a popular interview subject these days. I called her at her house in Baltimore. It took us an hour to get the audio right. And as you may hear, even then we had our problems. But I think it was worth the effort. Sonia Shah, it's such a pleasure to have you on the Next Big Idea podcast. Thank you for having me. Why don't we start at the end of your book with the acknowledgments where I learned that you wrote this book after interviewing someone from Doctors Without Borders in Athens, Greece. And you realized in that conversation that all your assumptions about migration were wrong. Can you tell us about that conversation? Yeah. So I had gone to Greece around 2015, which is right when the quote unquote migrant crisis was unfolding and just grabbing headlines when all the people from Syria, people from Afghanistan and Africa were trying to get into Europe through this bottleneck of the Mediterranean Sea. And it was deadly. They were drowning. They were getting stuck in border camps. The borders were closing. So I went there to report on what I thought was a potential public health crisis. Hmm. I had been writing about contagions for many years. And, you know, I had just finished my book on pandemics just around this time. So I went there thinking, well, this could be a health risk. You know, they could introduce diseases and Mm -hmm. that that would be, you know, maybe a problem. So that was my kind of hypothesis. And that's the, you know, I got a grant to go do reporting in Greece based on that idea. And I was talking to this Doctors Without Borders physician. And I said something about, you know, using the term migrant crisis. I don't remember exactly what question I was asking. But it was something like, oh, you know, what are the implications of this because of the migrant crisis? Something like that. And he said, there is no migrant crisis. And I was like, well, people are dying and drowning and, you know, these populist leaders were coming into power and closing the borders and there's all mm-hmm. this tumult. You know, what what is it then? You know, and he said, there's plenty of jobs in Greece. There's empty housing in Greece. The crisis is not the fact of people moving. The crisis is because of our failure to welcome them. So he called it like a reception crisis. And I realized then that I had been reflexively conflating migration with crisis. And so Mm -hmm. that sort of started the journey that then became this book. And meanwhile, as you're saying, the idea of migration as a disruptive force is something that had fueled your previous work as a journalist, some of your previous research and writing. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's really kind of central. And not to say it's not true. I mean, when, when microbes mm-hmm. and populations and wild species move around into new places and come into novel kinds of contact, that is a major driver of contagion, right? And we're seeing mm-hmm. that right now. We're living through it right now. So sure, sure. that does exist. But there's this much broader picture that only became clear to me as I started writing this It's such a joy to read your book, Sonia, because it's so expansive and lyrical. 
You paint this vivid picture of a world in constant motion. Whales are moving, birds are moving, bugs are moving, forests are moving, even coral reefs are moving. Inspired by a passage in your book, I watched some YouTube videos of the MoveBank tracing of GPS movements of animals and birds around the world. And it's beautiful. It's reminiscent of a weather system or ocean currents. But you argue that when people move, you know, we so often think of, of humans as being separate from the natural world, and of course we're not, but that when people move, we somehow consider it to be unnatural. Why do you think that is? I mean, I would argue that we often think of even wild species moving as a problem, at least. Mm -hmm, you know, I mm -hmm. mean, this whole idea of invasive species is based on this notion that if a species doesn't belong in a certain place, if it's, you know, alien or not native, that we don't like it and we want to get rid of it. But you're right. We don't think of human movements as central to the human experience. I mean, we think of mm -hmm. migration as exceptional, as intermittent as driven either by catastrophe or sort of extraordinary circumstances. But because we think of it as a marginal phenomenon, something that's happening along the edges in extraordinary conditions, I think it makes us feel like we can control that. You know, let's close the borders, let's pull up the fences, let's build the wall, because this is something we don't really want. And I think that does go back to that idea of like, well, people really are supposed to stay in certain places. To this day, we all describe ourselves based on our continental origins, even if that was, you know, many, many generations ago. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We very much internalized that idea that we all belong in a certain place. And, you know, that's just like a habit of mind that we have. And it traces back to our ideas about nature and history. And, you know, that's sort of what I want to get into in the book. You know, we so often talk about immigration in terms of politics and economics and sometimes morals, but your book takes a broader view of framing migration as a biological issue. Is this part of your objective to depoliticize migration? It wasn't my objective starting out, but in the end, that is where, you know, what the, one of the conclusions that I reach, mm. because what I wanted to explain is, okay, so first I was looking, well, why do we conflate migration with crisis? You know, why do we think of migrants as automatically disruptive and problematic? Even before they've gotten here, even before they've caused any problems, even before we've evaluated whether we have the absorptive capacity, whether it might be good for them, whether it might be good for their societies that they leave behind. We don't look at any of those questions. We just decide, okay, it's a crisis. We need to deal with it. And so I started kind of looking at, well, what are all those reasons? Okay, economic impact. Well, I looked closely at that and there's short-term economic impact, but long-term, it's definitely a plus. Then there's the security questions. Oh, do immigrants cause more crime? Well, they don't. Nobody's ever been able to track that. In fact, cities that have more immigrants have less crime. You know, there's all kinds of evidence that don't support that theory that immigrants cause crime. But it's more likely that immigrants cause less crime per capita than non-immigrants. Then we have this idea that, oh, well, they cause disease. You know, they're a health hazard. I think Donald Trump said, I think or very early on in his campaign, that Mexicans are bringing tremendous infectious disease across the border. That's That was his exact strange locution that he used. And so I examined each of those things. And, you know, the economic impact is only short term and the long term is a benefit. There is no security issue and there's no health issue either. In fact, migrants are healthier than the host populations they enter, which is well-documented phenomenon called the healthy migrant effect. They have, you know, fewer chronic illnesses. They have less obesity. They smoke less. They 
just by all of these measures, even if they get the same diseases that local residents get, they don't die of them at the same age. They last longer. So Mm. this goes back to the fact that migration itself kind of selects for people who have good health and resilience and resourcefulness and innovation, you know, all those things, because migration requires that. And so then I got to this other point where it's, if you keep scratching, keep digging, 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 well, why is it bad? Why is it bad? Then finally people say, well, it's just unnatural. You know, you can't have people moving around all the time. It's just unnatural. They belong over there. We belong here. You know, and so there's this conception of nature as if everyone has to stay in their little Mm. spots. Mm -hmm. Otherwise you know, the whole boat will tip over or something like that. You know, there's this idea of a balance somehow that has to be stable and that immigration somehow destabilizes it. And so then I wanted to sort of explore that conception of nature because that's not the way biologists actually understand nature anymore. And in fact, as it turns out, whoops, that. (laughs) <laughs> Sorry, my my Apple Watch just started talking to me. I, we have we, Siri. Siri is like the third is is the third person in my relationship with my wife. Every time I say "sweetie," it's Siri pops up. And, um, where was I? Oh yeah, um, the title of your book, Sonia, "The Next Great Migration," suggests that we have a big one coming. What is this next great migration in your title? Well, I think we're we're living through it right now. I think when I wrote the book, it was 40 to 70% of species had moved their ranges towards the poles and into the heights. Now it looks like it's more like 80%, but they're moving in sync with the shifting climate. Terrestrial species are moving, uh, marine creatures are moving about 75 kilometers a decade, forests are moving. So that migration is already happening. And we it's happening also in humans, but in a much more obscure way because our movements are limited and constrained by our politics and the invisible lines that we draw on the landscape. Mm -hmm. But even so, we have more people live outside of their country of birth today than ever before. The habitability of the entire planet is being reordered. So we have to move from these newly uninhabitable places like low-lying islands and coastlines and places where our fields are drying up. We have to move into new places. And so it's going to happen, but it's in fits and starts right now because our reaction is to say, oh, wait a second, we don't really like this too much. Yeah. But if you look in terms of the broader history, if we look at our evolution, migration has been critical to our resilience. It's why we have survived. I mean, we walked out of Africa and we populated the continents and then we didn't stay still. We kept moving. Even in ancient times, we, we went into the Tibetan plateau. We paddled canoes out into the Pacific and we did it over and over again. Even when we didn't have modern technology and it was really hard to move and we did it anyway. We didn't run out of food in Africa. We didn't run out of water. We didn't run out of space. Mm-hmm. And yet we left anyway. I have always been fascinated by how extraordinary it is that our ancestors sailed to Australia 50,000 years ago. And I recently encountered some suggestions it could have been even 60,000, 65,000. The sophistication required to build those boats and navigate across oceans 50,000 years ago was just astounding to me. And I was fascinated to learn reading your book that Captain Cook and other European explorers thought it was just categorically impossible that the natives could have sailed to these islands because, you know, they considered this to be this kind of crowning achievement of European sophistication that they'd finally managed to navigate to these places. And of course, we now know that the Polynesians had learned a way to navigate towards islands called wayfinding. 
they could sense the feedback of distant islands through the feel of the waves or the look or just this remarkable ability to navigate to distant islands across oceans on these boats. Yeah, they had the canoes with outriggers. That was what they, mm-hmm. you know, that was the the traditional Polynesian vessel. And they made it thousands of kilometers. And also you have to think about the fact that when those migrations first happened, of course, they didn't really know what was out there. So they really were just sailing in canoes out into a featureless expanse, not knowing what would be there, mm-hmm. and made it across thousands and thousands of kilometers of open ocean against the prevailing winds, against the prevailing currents in a canoe in ancient times. I mean, it's absolutely incredible. And it didn't just happen once, it happened many times over and over again. So you think about this huge effort and why, why, why did we do that? You know, there's no... There's no single event that explains it. There's no explosion. There's no volcanic eruption. There's no meteor that hit the planet and made everyone leave. We just did it. We just did it anyway. It seems like every week we're learning more about how complex our species is and how tangled our biological and cultural roots. With new technology, we're getting a much better sense of the long and winding paths we've taken to get to where we are today. But it's not like the pursuit of knowledge runs in a straight line either or that science always gets it right. In fact, Sonia Shaw blames scientists for some of our most enduring misconceptions. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by Medtronic. Medtronic is dedicated to the pursuit of life-transforming healthcare technology. From artificial intelligence to robotics and beyond, health tech is reinventing what's possible. Every year, Medtronic improves the lives of 74 million people, and we're just getting started. Visit Medtronic.com to learn more. It's 1958, and the Walt Disney Company releases a documentary called White Wilderness about the Arctic. In this land of many mysteries, it's a strange fact that the largest legends seem to collect around the smallest creatures. The creatures in question are lemmings, little rodents that live on the tundra. When food gets scarce, they gather by the hundreds and stampede toward the nearest body of water. Ahead lies the Arctic shore, and beyond, the sea. And still the little animals surge forward. The intrepid filmmakers are there to record it all. They reach the final precipice. This is the last chance to turn back. Yet over they go, casting themselves bodily out into space. The footage shows hundreds of lemmings tumbling over a cliff, splashing into the water, flailing, and finally floating, dead. And so is acted out the legend of mass suicide and destruction of a species it would seem to be. The film wins an Academy Award, and the Lemming story quickly finds its way into the popular consciousness. Over the cliff into the sea, sending our numbers joyfully. Over the cliff into the sea. Lemming songs, Lemming jokes, Lemming cartoons, and endless Lemming metaphors. Washington politicians are a lot like Lemmings. They follow their party, even if it's off a cliff. The Lemming suicide story was kicking around long before Disney captured it on film. An Oxford biologist named Charles Sutherland Elton stumbled on it on a visit to Norway in the 1920s. 
and it was his retelling that the filmmakers used. Elton was an authority on population dynamics. He was especially interested in what groups do when they grow too big for their food supply. When he heard about the lemmings, it made perfect sense, and it played into his larger theory that things belong in their proper place and that leaving might as well be a death march. Trouble is, he'd never actually studied lemmings, and scientists who did said the stories weren't true. Lemmings don't commit suicide. Yes, they move from place to place. Yes, they sometimes swim across bodies of water. And yes, they sometimes drown. But the suicide story is bunk. So how did Disney capture it on film? In the 1980s, word gets out that the lemming scenes were faked. To simulate a stampede, the filmmakers shot the animals running on a giant turntable. Then they put them in a truck, drove them to a riverbank, and dumped them over a cliff. Sonia Shah says it all goes to show the lengths folks will go to tell the stories they want to tell about migration. So let's talk about science and the way it's historically reinforced this idea that migration is somehow unnatural. Carl Linnaeus is a major villain in your book as the person who officially tied organisms to geographical locations through his naming system. This whole idea that plants and animals belong somewhere specific. Was he just codifying what people already believed, or could he have come up with another system that might have set us on a different track? I mean, there certainly were competing ideas at that time. Carl Linnaeus had his way. It was very much a splitting approach. It was, let's find all the ways in which these creatures are different and, you know, split them apart. And there was other naturalists who said, well, look, all these things are related. It's really just a gradation. You don't have these hard borders between one species and the next. But Carl Linnaeus really won the day. He decided that even the human species was not one whole species, but divided into four subspecies, which were basically color-coded by continent, where you know black humans lived in Africa, red humans lived in America, yellow people lived in Asia, and white people lived in Europe. Mm. And these ideas are very much still with us. I was amazed by some of the claims that were used to try to prevent mixing of the races and miscegenation. Like there was a suggestion that if a tall person bred with a short person, they might give birth to a tall child with puny organs designed for a smaller child, right? <laughs> there were all these kinds of fears or theories that, that proved to be not true when they went out and looked at what happened. Oh, but they looked and they looked and they looked and they looked. Yeah. And that idea was that if you had those hybrid people if you had people from two different races, one race would be tall, one race would be short, then the other problem they'd have is their organs would be too small and their arms would be too short. So they'd have long legs, but too short arms, and that would make it problematic for them to pick things up off the ground. This is actually put forward in, <laughs> in textbooks that this is like why we shouldn't have right. race mixing. Yeah. You'd think they might have been concerned about having a short leg and a long leg at that rate, you know. It's such a perfect time to be writing a book like this because it's so exciting, all the new discoveries that are, uh, I mean, I've been following this subject of human migration for years just because I find it so interesting. And, and I've noticed the dates keep getting pushed back and, and the story gets increasingly complex. For hundreds of years, of course, we've had archaeology as a tool. Linguistics is this other really interesting tool, right, we have to study migration. And now more recently, genetics, right, and mitochondrial DNA and of course, we only recently discovered that there was a part of the skull by the ear where we could actually salvage DNA. So there's been this explosion of knowledge and information, right? It's such an exciting time in the field. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is really 
And I didn't know this as I was putting this book together. So it was, it was, you know, just like a really incredible wealth of knowledge that is now being generated about our migratory past, where, you know, there was this idea that from the early genetic studies of mitochondrial DNA that we certainly originated in Africa. So at least that part, like we figured that part out. But the idea even then was like, well, we migrated out of Africa once. We walked out of Africa into an empty planet. We populated all the continents. And once we did that, we were done. And we stayed put for millennia until this era of modern movement made possible by our technology started up in what 19th century, 18th, 19th century, something like that. Well, what they're finding using ancient DNA is we walked out of Africa and we went into North America and then people went back into Asia and Europe or people walked into Europe and then went into Asia and then into the Americas and then back to Africa. You know, there's just all these complicated wanderings that are just as entangled and complex and contrary to what you'd expect as our migratory paths today, basically. I mean, this idea that when we walked out of Africa, that it was a dispersal into empty space, you know, I think that's very telling because in fact, people were already there and we had wars with them and we made babies with them, just like we do every time we collide with each other in new ways. So it just kind of really disrupts our ideas about why we migrate in the first place. And also that we didn't stop, you know, that we didn't stay still for millennia, evolving these sophisticated adaptations to our particular environment and niche and habitat, which is sort of this romantic idea about where people belong, right? So I still have to call myself South Asian because of my recent ancestry in South Asia, even though long-term ancestries somewhere else. So it just speaks to our idea that migration is something anomalous. Yeah, I love the your modification of the tree metaphor, which is people will sometimes think of human migration as a kind of tree we started in Africa and their branches to different locations around the world. And you say, if we want to use a tree metaphor, We have to think of a different kind of tree. In nature, sometimes two branches rub together, eventually fusing. And you write, this is a wonderful sentence, the result is a braided tree with branches sprouting from its trunk and merging back together again. It's like a river with streams flowing in and out, winding apart, and then reuniting. If our past is a tree, it's this special kind of tree. Such a nice image. Yeah, I mean, the tree metaphor has been really, I think, you know, it shapes how you think about where migration happens and why it happens. You know, the idea of the base of the tree being Africa and then each branch of the human family kind of went off into its separate continents. Well, then there is no intermingling anymore. You're just out on your separate branch and you don't grow back together again, except of course, in this special kind of tree, as I mentioned. You know, so it's not that there's no differentiation happening. We are differentiating, but then we're merging together again you know, and we're differentiating and reintegrating. And that's introducing diversity, whether it's genetic diversity or cultural diversity or linguistic diversity. And that's what becomes part of the resilience of our societies. That's where it comes from. Earlier in the show, we heard about the lemmings and this incredible kind of false narrative about mass suicides. In the book, you link that narrative to a population biologist named Charles Sutherland Elton, who went on to found the field of invasion ecology. Can you explain that connection? Yeah, so Charles Elton is actually known as the father of modern ecology, and he wrote the kind of seminal text for a subdiscipline in biology called invasion biology. 
And he came up with this theory about invasive species that was still very much alive today. Mm. You know, this idea that there's creatures that belong in certain places because they've evolved in that place for a very long time. He called them niches. But if they were allowed to just move around and didn't kill themselves like the lemmings, then they would penetrate new places and cause all kinds of problems there. And they would disrupt the balance in those other places with their perfectly balanced little harmonious mm. system. And so there's this whole idea about how ecology worked in which migrants were the disruptors. They were sort of this malevolent force that migration's, you know, best outcome was death. And that if migrants lived, that it caused all kinds of problems. They're alien. They don't belong. We need to rid them from our landscapes. And that sort of will purify our landscapes. This is what the kind of thing Elton was talking about. And it was really passed down to, you know, the Nazi regime. And they, you know, they, this was something that was very critical in their ideas too about nature, which is, you know, the Jews were unnatural and they were out of place. That's why they needed to be exterminated like pests. And they thought the same thing about non-native species. If you had certain plants in your garden, they weren't German plants, they thought that you should rip them out and there should be only German landscaping. And there's this whole idea about what is alien, what is native. And it was a moralistic idea and that we had to kind of purge the landscape of the alien stuff. And you point out there was a rash of books with titles like Immigrant Killers and Alien Invasion and Feral Future and these really alarmist concerns about invasive species. And the language of these concerns overlaps, it seems, with fears of human migration, right? And I, I, I love you have this great line about you write about British concern about American gray squirrels displacing the native red squirrels, that there's a fear that migrating animals might take the ecological jobs from the natives, right? That there's a parallel to some degree with, with how we our fears around immigration. I mean, in the early days when these ideas were first being formulated, there was much less sort of wariness about using humans as a parallel. Like, I think today it's considered sort of not politically correct to talk about humans in the same breath as you talk about animals. And so invasion biologists only talk about wild species. They don't talk about human migration at all. But that wasn't true in the beginning. In the beginning, it was all of a piece. It was all about, mm. you know, what belongs where and how do we purge the landscape of the things that don't belong? I mean, the other really striking study about this is that out of all the creatures that move, only 10% of them can actually establish themselves in a new place. And then of those 10%, only 10% become a problem in some way, whether it's to human health or to the resident species or to, you know, cause economic damage, you know, something that we don't like. So we're talking about 10% or 10%. So 1% of all species that are moving into new places actually cause the problems that we call invasive. Do you think then, Sonia, that we should stop pulling up garlic mustard in our gardens and worrying about invasive plants taking over our lakes and ponds? I mean, are those concerns completely misplaced or only partially misplaced? I think it's the way we talk about it that needs to change. I mean, those decisions are made on the basis of our economic needs, the needs of endangered species that we care about, the needs of um, economically important fish or birds or, you know, whatever, that's totally valid. So it's totally valid and legitimate for us to control our landscapes so that they function in ways that we want. We do that all the time. That's what farming is. And that's totally fine. My issue is with the rhetoric and the moralistic way we talk about it. It's not accurate. It's an outdated way of looking at how we should manage these places. 
In The Next Great Migration, Sonia Shaw writes about an ecologist in Hawaii who tries to purge a forest of non-native plants, but finds she just can't do it. The non-natives keep coming back. Then, when she takes a closer look at how the ecosystem operates, she realizes that the hybrid forest is actually healthier than the all-native one she's been trying to preserve. That feels like a lesson for human migration, but is the world ready to hear it? Talking to Sonia Shaw, it strikes me that ideas are a little like plants and animals in that they never seem to stay in one place. They migrate, they interbreed, and they evolve, and they change the world as they move through it, on balance, I think, for the better. To see what I'm talking about, why not become a member of the Next Big Idea Club? Our curators, Susan Kane, Malcolm Gladwell, Daniel Pink, and Adam Grant, scour the nonfiction landscape for the best new books. We send them to you along with video and audio from the authors themselves that let you absorb their key ideas in just minutes. To try it for three months free, migrate over to nextbigideaclub.com slash podcast. That's nextbigideaclub.com slash podcast. In The Next Great Migration, Sonia Shaw describes some of the harrowing journeys of people trying to move across borders in a world that almost always wants them to stay put. Some are fleeing violence, some are fleeing persecution, some are risking everything for opportunities they might never have at home. Immigration policy is such a complicated and contentious topic, I wonder if she sees a clear path forward. So let's talk about where we go from here. On the one hand, we see a rise in nativist movements around the world and a hardening of borders. But you've mentioned the United Nations effort to rationalize immigration policy worldwide to make it safer and more orderly. Is there any hope for that, do you think? I think in order to get to a place where we can even start talking about migration, we need to completely rethink the way we talk about it. And we need to get to a place where we trust each other. I think there's just a lot of bad faith arguments being made about migration and migrants right now. So it's very difficult to make policy in a way that makes any sense at the moment, you know? So I think we're going to need to step back and start to reimagine what migration is and what it means to us. And I think that will happen because more and more of us are going to reach that point where we're going to need to move. You know, we're changing where people can live on the planet is not going to be the same anymore. You know, seas are rising, the, mm -hmm. the climate's changing, all these changes that we're already experiencing. It's not just on the margins. It's going to affect all of us in some way or another. And I think more of us are going to have to start wrapping our minds around that. And I'm hopeful that as we do that, that we can start to come to kind of a new kind of conversation about migration and, and how we want to approach it on a policy level. You know, it's such a relief traveling in Western Europe and not having to deal with passports and interrogation every time, you know, you, you move from one country to another. Mm -hmm. And it feels like the way the world should be. And of course, you point out in the book that until recently, there were no physical borders between countries. There was often like a vague approximation of like where countries began and ended. And I love this argument, you know, Harari makes in Sapiens that countries like companies are fictions, that they only exist because we collectively believe that they exist. It sounds like a radical idea, but we have states where you can move from one state to the other 
easily. You have countries in Europe, you can move from one country to the other. You have many countries in Africa, you can move one country to the other pretty easily. So borders don't have to be these violent, strict lines between us. They can be fuzzy. It doesn't mean that you still have to accept everyone who enters into your society. Your society can still be selective because any society, there's jobs for some people and there's not jobs for other people. There's homes for some people and there's not homes for other people, right? Like mm -hmm. we can say, yeah. come in. And then if you fit in, if you find a good spot, cool. And you obey our rules, fine. But if you don't, then you're not going to find a place here. It sounds sort of radical to say that, but like that's how our whole country functions. It's how many parts of the world function. So to me, like this idea that we need to have borders is something that I think we can question. Well, I love your description of these animal pathways that have been created to allow animals to migrate across highways and you know other barriers that are heavily used, right? That we've managed in some places to permit animal migration in a way that's been really beneficial to the ecosystem. There's an elegance to that solution. It reminds me of how, you know, with flooding in New York City, you know, there's a view or like in Holland that rather than try to put up huge barriers and stop the water from coming, you just create a system that makes it easier for water to flow in and water to flow out. And that maybe the vision here is just to change the perspective, allow more free flow, and perhaps we would find it to be uh, uh, much more successful. I think we would then capitalize on so many more of the benefits of migration. We're always going to have the disruptions because migration happens whether we like it or not. So why not facilitate it? So, yeah. you know, yeah. we can we can do that with wildlife. Why can't we do that with people? It doesn't mean that we lose sovereignty. It doesn't mean that we don't have specific cultures. You know, those are some of the fears that people have. Like if you just, you know, this idea, oh, open the borders and like we won't have a culture anymore. We won't be able to decide what we want to do. Like they'll be in charge of everything. And it's like that's I don't know why. Why do we have to assume that? It doesn't have to be that way at all. Those are all choices we can make. But to some degree, it strikes me that all of this boils down to whether we have a bias against change or towards change. To some degree, I think humans tend to fear change. And the reality is that change is inevitable. And I concluded at some point in my life that I'm going to be a happier person if I'm pro-change. That <laughs> you know? it's like, it's yeah. basically, it's a losing battle to have a view that all change is sort of a desecration of the past, right? Because we live in an evolving system. Yeah, absolutely. With the Black Lives Matter protests, we're in a moment of reckoning, not just as a society, but as individuals about our deep-seated attitudes towards people who may be different from us. Do you think that applies to migration as well? What work do we need to do on an individual level? I mean, I think we've all, and I include myself in this, we all have a bias against movement. You know, I think we're taught from a very young age that everything belongs in a certain place. And if it's out of place, that that's alarming, you know, that disorder is repellent and scary. We show that to our kids with the little animal maps we give them when they're little. Hmm. The camels belong in the Middle East and the kangaroos belong in Australia and the bears belong in North America, et cetera. We've been really indoctrinated with that idea, and I count myself among those for sure. Even as migrants, we say, no, no, we're, we're entitled to take up a little space because, look, I'm, I'm helping you with your economy, or I'm contributing in this way, or, you know, we, we have to sort of justify the fact that we are taking up some space in some new place. 
I think there's a personal element to this for sure, at least certainly for me. And it changes how you think about everything. You know, we've thought of migration as this marginal phenomenon, this exceptional destructive thing on the edges that we don't, maybe we don't want it, maybe we're not, we're not sure, we're ambivalent about it. If you then understand it, as the new science is kind of telling us, that migration is not this marginal thing, it's the center. It is like the central thing of the human experience. It's the central way that we have adapted to living on a dynamic planet and on not just us, but all these other wild species too. And as we enter this era of rapid change, that this is something we need to embrace you know, because this is like what has allowed us to survive and all the other times of rapid change that we have gone through and that we have survived. This is how we've come out of all of that, right? With bodies that are incredibly adaptive, that can move into new places. And it does change your thinking about a lot of stuff once you, once you kind of embrace that idea that migration isn't the weird thing we have to explain. Maybe it's staying still without needs the explanation. It's a wonderful reframing. It really is. You know, it occurs to me that if Elon Musk picked up your book and read the title, The Next Great Migration, he might assume that you're talking about our migration into space. Uh, <laughs> yes. And I, I, find, yes. I find it kind of extraordinary that much as centuries ago, wealthy patrons built ships to explore the globe, that today, Elon Musk, Richard Branson, and Jeff Bezos are all fixated on space exploration as being essential for the future of the species. But it strikes me that even in the worst case scenario, if you imagine everything that we could possibly, you know, the worst global warming scenarios, still probably planet Earth is much more hospitable than Mars, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I think that they would probably say that I'm not thinking broadly enough. What do you think about interstellar migration? Well, like you, I feel that we do belong on this planet, at least. You know, the idea of iron at the core of the planet and iron in the center of our red blood cells, like, we're so of this place, of this planet. Mm. I'm open to that idea that maybe we do need to move, but the way I interpret it is that we have this migratory instinct. Mm. You know, why did we leave Africa? Why did we set off in canoes from Asia into the featureless ocean? Why did we climb into the Tibetan plateau over the Himalayan mountains? Why did we do all those things? It's the same reason why we're going off into space now, because we can. So I think this migratory instinct is very strong in us. And it, it's not propelled by a catastrophe and crisis necessarily. It's just, it's also just there. So to me, like this next phase of moving out and trying to explore the space is, is just of a piece with our, our drive to, to move and to explore and to migrate around. Well, I have a hunch that you and I will not be the first two people getting on the, uh, the spaceship to Mars. <laughs> I, think pretty, I think we'll stay here for a while. But Sonia, it's so lovely talking with you about all this. What a fascinating book. And thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. This is really fun. From Wondery, this is the next big idea. If you have thoughts about the next great migration or any of the other books in our series, We'd love you to join the conversation with me, Sonia Shaw, and other writers at nextbigideaclub.com. It's a lively community of lifelong learners where you can interact with top nonfiction writers and get audio, video, and text summaries of their key ideas. Sign up for three months free at nextbigideaclub.com slash podcast. If you like our show, please give us a five-star rating and a review and be sure to tell your friends. 
And I would personally love to hear your thoughts about this podcast, what you'd like, what we could do better, and what you'd like to learn about. Send me an email at rufus at nextbigideaclub.com. That's rufus, R-U-F-U-S, at nextbigideaclub.com. Special thanks this week to Sonia Shaw. Her book, The Next Great Migration, is available wherever books are sold. I'm your host, Rufus Griscom. This episode of The Next Big Idea was written by our senior producer, Jonathan Miller. Sound design by Jake Gorski. Our associate producer is Caleb Bissinger. Producers are Michael Kovnat and Natalie Shisha. Executive producers are Stephanie Jens, Marshall Louie, and Hernan Lopez for Wondering. Wondering.